Welcome to the sequel of the ambassadorial series, Deans of US-Russia Diplomacy. I'm Hannah Notte. No decade was more decisive for shaping post-Cold War US-Russia relations than the fateful 1990s. Who can claim to have a more unique and intimate perspective of the forces that shaped this relationship than United States ambassadors to Russia? Jack Matlock, Thomas Pickering and James Collins served as US ambassadors to Moscow. From the disintegration of the Soviet Union in 1991 to President Putin's ascent to power a decade later, they were eyewitnesses to Russia's tremendous transformation after the fall of the Iron Curtain. They were also actors in that history. They met and negotiated with the highest Russian officials, traveled throughout the country, interacted with Russian citizens. In this sequel to the ambassadorial series, we will learn from three deans of US-Russia diplomacy. They will share their personal experiences in navigating the challenges in the US-Russia relationship during the 1990s, Russian domestic upheavals and regional and international developments that would come to trouble the relationship. And we will take a step back from those events to reflect on missed opportunities, ways forward, and recipes for successful U.S.-Russia diplomacy. No assistant secretary had ever suggested that to me before. I don't think I had ever approached the question of writing the President of the United States a personal message from overseas. But Stroh believed that uh, my judgment would be useful to the President. Uh, that was in itself an honor. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Ambassador Thomas Pickering. In this second part of our conversation, we will take a deeper dive into important dimensions of US-Russia diplomacy. We will hear what lessons the ambassador has learned engaging Russia from different positions in the US government throughout his distinguished service. And we will discuss how domestic politics in the United States can affect diplomacy vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Ambassador Pickering, I would like to turn the conversation to an important policy field in US-Russia relations over time, and that is the field of arms control and non-proliferation. Now, it appears to me that after some initial progress on arms control in the early 1990s, with the START treaties, the Lisbon Protocol, or the Presidential Nuclear Initiatives, the PNIs, somehow momentum on arms control was then lost during the Clinton administration. For example, there was no agreement negotiated on non-strategic nuclear weapons in Europe to build on the PNIs. So why was that? Why was there not more momentum? And perhaps uh, you were in Moscow from 93 to 96 what was your sense of Russia's appetite at the time to do more arms control with the Americans? And it's a great question. And I think my immediate reaction was that there were too many competing other problems of dissonance that allowed the parties to leave arms control a little bit behind in terms of how to move forward. After all, Russia and uh, Yeltsin were struggling for control of the country. 
it was not a united enterprise by any means. The United States had an interest in it, but it is quite possible in the Clinton administration that the opportunity that appeared on the horizon uh, that can best be epitomized by uh, the overstatement that having an opportunity to make a Swiss democracy out of Russia uh, was an attractive and indeed fetching set of circumstances uh, to absorb American attention. And as a result, the relationship uh, of the with the former Soviet Union with the new Russia uh, became a struggle in many quarters rather than highly isolated and focused mainly but not exclusively on arms control. And I think that had a role. I think we are approaching a period of pre-polarization in American activities. And you know, as well as I know, that the horrendous problem of getting the Senate to agree with a significant number from both parties uh, to meet the stringent requirements of two-thirds vote for advice and consent to ratification of an agreement uh, was clearly imperiled uh, by this polarization question that came along. And there were Republicans who had fantastic ideas. I can only call them fantastic because they were unreal, unsupported, unfactual, and certainly uh, uncooperative and uneasy uh, that informed or misinformed their judgment about what they should do. And it was that collection of circumstances, perhaps, that played something of a role that may have been too a semi-source of satisfaction, if I could put it that way, that enough things had been cobbled together in the better period to stand us in substantially reasonably good stead over the period of adjusting to the post-communist situation in Russia. Thank you for that. And perhaps I could zoom out a little bit and ask you a broader question on arms control and non-proliferation. You are someone who has worked passionately to further the course of, of non-proliferation of arms control really over decades, even since leaving office in, in various track one and a half or track two um, capacities. And, and I do wanna ask you, in the absence of a cataclysmic event, a real wake up call, like God forbid, the type of a Chernobyl disaster of 1986, how can we reignite today at the highest uh, leadership level in our various countries, uh, commitment to arms control, disarmament and non-proliferation really beyond the level of commitment, commitment that we're presently seeing um, generate the kinds of pressures that we do now see on climate change, for instance, at least among certain constituencies. Climate change is not the perfect example, but in some cases, one would consider it now moving ahead in a forward direction more readily than arms control. My answer to your question really falls into three particular baskets. Number one and most important, we saw with the continuation of New START, that there was not a total lack of interest on the part of either Russia and its leader 
for the United States and its new leader to move ahead. We had been through a period uh, rather devastating of unfortunately Republican leads in tearing down the structure that had been built up over a period of time with the ABM treaty, with open skies, with the INF, with uh, a number of issues, including non-observance of things like incidents at sea and so on, that really spelled, in my view, increasing and creeping danger. And I think there is a deep feeling on the part of leaders in both countries that tearing up the final piece, Rose Gottemuller's and uh, 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 Mr. Andropov's uh, close work uh, together in putting together New START uh, would have opened the door even more uh, to accident miscalculation and the horrors that might stem from that, the things that informed us both during the Cold War. Uh, and it was represented at the Geneva summit in June uh, by the agreement to begin again strategic stability talks to use that as a basis uh, perhaps for returning the ambassadors to open the door to other conversations that might ensue from that uh, and for the reissuance of the statement that had been issued by Reagan and Gorbachev that a uh, nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. Uh, and this means that there is, without putting too fine a point on it, some tilt at the top in the direction of the next stage. And the next stage will not be easy. It can be based very strongly uh, on the monitoring, control, and verification arrangements, which have been patiently worked out in a great deal of detail in New START as a basis for finding ways to assure the next stage uh, can be adequately controlled. The second part of the next stage is perhaps the suggestion made by the Obama administration that 1,000 or 900 deliverable nuclear weapons may be the right ballpark for the strategic force. The third will be the useful and helpful suggestions of a numbers, including my old friend and colleague, Stephen Pfeiffer, that we look at tactical nuclear weapons. And one of the questions we might uh, provide for is the freedom to mix. You can have a total of X weapons, uh, if you wish to have some of those tactical and some of those strategic, that's your choice. Uh, the final piece, and it's not the final piece, but the final piece in my exposition is that moving down from the five and 6,000 weapons currently held by the powers, down, I hasten to add, from 70,000 at the height of the Cold War, perhaps, uh, to something that aligns the deliverable weapons much more clearly with the number of reserve weapons and the number of weapons under dismantlement at a much lower level would in itself be, I think, a useful step. And finally, finally, the association of Britain, France, and China uh, with those negotiations. I think it's too early to try to pull them in. But one of the things I've always thought made a lot of sense was that Russia and the United States would undertake, if they didn't want to do so collectively, individually, frequently to brief China, Britain, and France on their vision of where those negotiations were going and how they might end. Intimately involving them or more intimately involving them in the back and forth of the negotiations and the problems that are engaged so that they would have 
some of the background and some of the knowledge and some of the thoughts and ideas about how to solve those problems. The second uh, set of questions is also extremely important. And that is the crying out need now, which I hope will be fulfilled for a number of track two dialogues between uh, Russia and the United States. The NATO-Russian effort started by Sergei Rogov and Alexei Gromyko, which we've just been in touch with you and I, uh, would be a perfect example of how to evolve further bilateral conversations. And indeed, Sergei Rogov has played an unusual cre and creative constructive role in arranging for the same over the past uh, five or 10 years from time to time in Moscow. And these are significant and important. And then I think, uh, finally, there is uh, in the public ken uh, across the world, still a significant sense of concern that without careful management and without further work, uh, the retrograde progress that has been made in the last 10 years will become the dominant uh, ethic in how things are done. And unfortunately, in the Trump-Putin era, uh, we saw individuals at the top level, including those two individuals, speak about nuclear weapons as if they were just a larger form of hand grenade and could be engaged in with impunity and that it was perfectly all right to threaten somebody else uh, with nuclear use and that that contributed to better things for the individual country and America first or Russia first objectives, all of which I think were dangerous, um, thoughtless, uh, and needed to be correction, corrected. And let's, hopeful, let's be hopeful that Biden and Putin can do so. The first meetings uh, around the question of strategic stability have not been breathtakingly successful. They have not been, in my view, totally without profit. And they have done the minimum, which is to lead on to for further meetings. Uh, but more work and more effort can be put into those. Uh, the current uh, uh, posture of each country uh, seeking to avoid doing anything that in any way at all enhances uh, the position of the other country, and that includes closer relationships between them, is not the best cloud to have hanging over the strategic stability talks. And let us hope that uh, creative work can turn that around, that that can lead to engagement on what would only happily be called new, new start, and that new, new start can begin to pick up the pieces that I have set out uh, in the first part of my answer to your question. Thank you very much for that, Ambassador Pickering. I'd like to turn uh, the conversation to culture. You served as US ambassador, not only to Russia, but also to India, Israel, El Salvador, and Nigeria, countries with very different cultures, histories, social norms, concepts of honor and, and prestige and related notions. Could you reflect for us a little bit on the importance to diplomatic service of understanding culture uh, in the country that you serve to foster empathy and understanding with your interlocutors 
and perhaps share some anecdotes from your own uh, diplomatic uh, career that served to illustrate this. Thank you. And uh, it's an interesting question. You could add uh, Jordan and the United Nations to that list. The United Nations is not without culture. Indeed, it has 193 cultures. I found culture fantastically important and extremely interesting. I spent a great deal of my time in Jordan and in Israel, uh, following, learning about, exploring, and indeed visiting the archaeology of the region. I emerged as an historian with my undergraduate degree and never have put aside history as a uh, interest of mine. I enjoy music. I enjoy dance. Russia was particularly rich in understanding that. Uh, the literature of all of these countries was very interesting. Woli Shoyinka, among others in Nigeria, had begun to emerge as a famous author of renown. And reading what he was writing, as well as others of his counterparts, both in Nigeria and across Africa, opened the door a great deal uh, to my interests. I had the wonderful opportunity of spending four months in Washington studying the Swahili language before I went to Zanzibar and then to Dar es Salaam. Uh, and the course was rich and very, very interesting and led by a, an especially gifted linguist who taught us in the first two weeks without any knowledge of a single word in Swahili, the 10 most difficult adaptations an English speaker must have uh, to be able to manage the language. And I used it in Zanzibar in particular for all of my diplomatic work um, because the then Revolutionary Council had only one English speaker and he was not at the top of the council. Uh, I found travel, uh, which is an amazing preoccupation for anybody, but it certainly uh, hardened my interest, if I could put it this way, in cultural writ large. Um, and I made a number of long trips. When I was in Nigeria, it took a year of planning but I and a small group of people drove from Lagos to Algiers across the Sahara and back. And much of what we saw and paid attention to was of archeological and historical importance. And so in the middle of the Sahara, uh, we visited petroglyphs, which drawn by humans, but many hundreds and thousands of years ago, uh, showed savanna grasslands, elephants, and giraffe. Uh, we found, uh, wonderful carvings in rock in serious bas-relief of uh, cattle heads with long horns like the East African Ancole cattle. And so this was in many ways a delight uh, and wanted only to open one's eyes to appreciate the architecture around the world. India was an enormous resource and I uh, had uh, two great trips in India in the short 10 months I was there, uh, one mainly in Rajasthan and the other in South India, uh, viewing and seeing uh, much of what informed me about the historical background uh, to people from those regions. Uh, so that's a brief canter over a very complex course, but a very interesting one. And there was much that the U.S. did in the field of American culture, bringing uh, dance uh, from America 
with a newly formed Black American troop uh, to Tanzania was uh, an amazing uh, illustration of how the interest in Alvin Ailey, who ran that troop, not just in showing the best of what he could do for modern American dance, but going to the villages around Dar es Salaam in Tanzania and getting them to dance for and with him uh, to learn what they did and how they performed and what they had to contribute was extremely interesting. I learned much about Islam because I spent most of my time in the early days in the Islamic world, more by accident than by plan. Uh, but nevertheless, it was significant and important. So let me leave my answer there. But thank you for a question that's close to my heart. And thank you for pointing out that ambassadors are more than postmen. Uh, they are people who have uh, a very avid intellectual life. And enriching that intellectual life while you're overseas is both a challenge and a huge reward. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you also for sharing these anecdotes of your travel with us. And it seems to me that you've seen some amazing places throughout your career. Um, building on that, I want to ask you, you have dealt with Russia in very different capacities uh, throughout your distinguished career serving the US government. I mean, you were US ambassador to the United Nations, so you dealt with Soviet and then Russian counterparts there. Then you were ambassador to Russia. And then I assume that as Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, you also had a fair share of, of dealing with Russia-related uh, issues. And then subsequently in many track one and a half and track two activities. So you've really had the opportunity to formulate Russia policy from very different vantage points. And I'd like to ask you uh, what your takeaways are from engaging with Russia from these different uh, positions in the US government. Did specific positions highlight specific opportunities or constraints when it comes to dealing with Russia? And did any of these positions afford you specific learning opportunities on how one best engages with Russia? I did. And I think, Hannah, without putting too fine a point on it, I learned very much to like Russians. They're in many ways like Americans. And while we had serious differences, particularly with Russians in the Soviet Union, and their diplomats were super competent, uh, knew their briefs very well, uh, pointed out all the areas where they uh, found differences with the United States and where they could pick apart those differences and exploit them. And we were always put on our uh, uh, most careful uh, approach to questions with them. But over a period of time, particularly in my time of service in Russia, when, when I began, everybody had been in one way or another Uh, a serious and loyal servant of the communist state, the Soviet Union. And in 1993, they were still in positions of importance and power. And much of what they knew was not going to be washed out of their brain cages uh, by any changing circumstances. Uh, and to make an impression, we had to prove that we were right. 
And we had to do our best to show that we were open to change as well, and that this was not a refighting of the Cold War in a new guise. And that took a great deal of time, and it didn't succeed everywhere, either with Americans or uh, with Russians. Uh, But I had a number of particularly fine interlocutors. Uh, I won't mention their names because they deserve the anonymity they had when we spoke together on many occasions uh, in Moscow. But one of the values of that set of relationships was that I could meet with a senior official, that we could, in some occasions when it was useful, uh, retire to a separate room, the two of us together, uh, to work together on the solution to a particularly difficult problem uh, that often uh, my Russian colleague would want to hear uh, what my proposal was first. That was okay. I didn't mind it. I think the hand that holds the pen sometimes has an advantage. But I wanted very much to provoke a reaction from my Russian colleague under those circumstances. And hopefully that reaction would open the door to how I could adjust and he could adjust our proposals and thoughts and ideas uh, to bring things closer together. And that would always result in what I consider to be some of my useful telegrams written back to Washington saying, I'd met with so-and-so today. Uh, We agreed to talk one-on-one. We agreed that the following problem needed more attention, was not in good shape. Uh, The suggestions that came out from me uh, were the following, from him, the following. The result was we modified in the following directions, and hopefully this is something you can work with and let me know that we can carry on the dialogue uh, and see if we can come to some useful conclusion. Didn't always work, uh, but it worked uh, often enough for me to have a kind of satisfaction with that relationship which interestingly enough was rare, even in places where I was working uh, with friendly interlocutors who were either close allies or close coalition partners. And that was unusual. I learned to appreciate Russia's cultural history. We've just been talking about it. I learned to understand uh, Russian orthodoxy. Uh, I had the opportunity uh, quite frequently to meet with uh, the patriarch, Alexei, at the time, uh, and talk to him about issues that were important. We talked rarely about religion, although he was clearly motivated by religious inspiration, uh, and he brought that religious inspiration into his conversations with me. But at the same time, we talked about things that were of great importance to the future of Russia, often domestic problems that Russia was struggling with, that in one way or another, he or the Orthodox Church had reason to believe could be important. Uh, He was concerned by outside proselytization uh, of Russians by mainly evangelical Christians uh, from outside, including from the United States. And there was a bit of a struggle uh, going on in that area. But he represented uh, early on Uh, perhaps one of the most esteemed, if not the most esteemed organization in Russia by Russian citizens, perhaps the army ranked 
at various times up there with the Orthodox Church among these. Uh, and I found that extremely valuable. I think that uh, over time, it was also possible for me, and I think today about those days, to visit the house of Pasternak, uh, to uh, visit uh, places where the great Russians, Pushkin, and so on, had lived to both in and around Moscow and in the countryside, uh, and see how intensively the Russian state continued to honor these great accomplishers in the field of literature and poetry and in opera and in music and in composition uh, and the esteem that was that they were held in. These were all important because they gave you a better sense of how Russians thinking had become shaped by their own history and by their knowledge of what Russia was, what Russia had been and what Russia could become. Thank you for that. And, and thank you for those reflections on meeting with various interlocutors in Moscow personally, and then writing telegrams uh, back to Washington. This is a perfect segue into my next question, which is about the process of foreign policy making in the United States, particularly vis-a-vis -vis Russia. That process to an outside observer seems to be a complex one with a crowded uh, actor landscape. So when it comes to foreign policy making, how can we understand the role and the relative weight of the president, the secretaries of state and defense, Congress and other constituencies? And where does the role of the ambassador fit in? I mean, when the Washington bureaucracy is also in direct contact with Moscow, then what precisely is the role of the ambassador And what are some of the opportunities and constraints within which he or she operates? Well, let me begin with the ambassador, which is something I'm most familiar with, having worked for ambassadors and then having uh, to perform as an ambassador. Uh, my sense has been long before I was an ambassador that the ambassador's role in American foreign policy was multifarious, many facets, that um, one of the key roles, if not the key role, was to know and understand American policy, to know and understand when it was working, but also to know and understand when it wasn't working. And then to have the wisdom, particularly through contacts with people in the country that was concerned with that policy, as well as context with people carrying it out in the American embassy of where it might be deficient or moving toward deficiency. And then using the platform that ambassadors had of writing a personal message uh, to the State Department, sometimes to a special individual in the State Department. I had the great joy and pleasure of working with Strobe Talbot. And Strobe knew and understood Russia as well as anyone. And Strobe was open to listening to ideas and was frequently asked me for my reactions to thoughts and ideas about what was going on or where things might move or what we should be doing. 
This was a rich and I think valuable dialogue between us, but it allowed me, as I had done in other places, uh, not to become a postman delivering messages in two directions, but to become a policy advocate for change when it needed to come and how it needed to be made. And this, in course, involved a certain sense of care because the person I was working with was primary in having made the decisions to institute the policy we were now seeking to change in the first place. And that individual, uh, often an assistant secretary of state, but in in Strobe's position, he occupied the position of assistant secretary of state for all of the former Soviet Union. Um, But there was never any question about your uh, seeking uh, to spear Uh, my greatest achievement without giving it a chance to work. Uh, It was rather, I had to be careful, obviously, in explaining why I thought the policy needed some polishing, if we could put it that way. And he had to explain what he thought he could do to move in that direction. But he was very good. Uh, On a number of occasions, not too many, but a number, Strobe and I would be in touch. We had the opportunity of having a a secure telephone line, or what we believed was a secure telephone line to speak over. Uh, And he would suggest to me, the president's coming in a week. He's extremely interested in the following question. Could you give him no more than two paragraphs on what he should know about it and what he should be thinking about doing about it? And that was absolutely unusual. Uh, No assistant secretary had ever suggested that to me before. I don't think I had ever approached the question of writing the president of the United States a personal message from overseas. Um, But Strobe believed that uh, my judgment would be useful to the president. Uh, That was in itself an honor. Uh, But that the messages I sent would be heeded and listened to and absorbed. And I always did that. I always worked very hard on that message. Two paragraph messages is a lot harder to write than a 20 paragraph message. Uh, And you have to get exactly in those things that are important. And you have to do it in a way that neither bores the president nor in any way moves the president's thinking in a direction where you don't want the president to go. And it has to have the balance of presentation that makes for its credibility. And that was extremely interesting. On a number of occasions, I had the privilege and the honor, both in Russia and elsewhere, but often in Russia, briefing the Secretary of State, uh, in briefing senior State Department officers, Deputy Secretary occasionally, the Undersecretary for Political Affairs, on what was going on, often in visits back to the United States or in visits when they came to Moscow. Uh, Strobe had with a senior Russian, a strategic dialogue that big pieces of which took place when he visited Moscow. And I was always welcome and a participant in these meetings and thought that uh, that was from my perspective, an unusual opportunity to explore in depth uh, some of the same kind of questions that we explored bilaterally. Uh, when there wasn't a visit going on in Washington, in which I just explained. So that all played a role. 
secretaries of defense I got to know. Uh, I accompanied William Perry on a visit uh, to northern Russia to see uh, Russian efforts at uh, uh, breaking up uh, uh, missile submarines that uh, were being retired as a result of arms control agreements to reduce the size of that fleet. Um, those were always interesting and important, and they provided opportunities and side conversations during that travel uh, to talk to the Secretary of Defense about uh, questions that were on my mind, as well as the questions that were on his. And Bill Perry was, and still is, an old friend and a man whose judgment and capacities I esteem highly, as was Bill Cohen. We both attended the same small college in Maine many years apart, but that connection has always meant something important to me and I believe to him, uh, and we have continued from time to time uh, to be in touch with each other. Uh, so that covers much of what we were engaged in, but the Gord Chernomirdin Commission was a very useful enterprise because it brought a wide range of American cabinet officers together with their Russian cabinet officers. It presented a large variety of opportunities to manage the relationship in a way that got close to the decision-making uh, center in each of our countries. And as a result, we could do things more expeditiously and maybe more effectively uh, by moving in that direction. And it was something that was not a competition with the embassy so much as a further instrument for improving the effectiveness of a relationship uh, with a country. And the relationship with Russia was, and I believe remains important, and a singularly most significant aspect of that was that as a result of the nuclear developments in both countries, uh, we had the capacity to destroy each other and perhaps most of the planet. And it was therefore a tremendously important issue uh, that we conduct our relationships in a way that could be fully aware that no mistake should ever be permitted to go on long enough to have threatened uh, that kind of activity. And then I was acutely aware, as many of us were, that nuclear deterrence was singularly important but that if a nuclear exchange ever started, there wasn't anybody we knew who could give us a surefire way, to put it that way, uh, to end such an exchange uh, and to preserve humanity uh, and the viability of our countries in the face of that kind of unmitigated disaster. Thank you for that, Ambassador Pickering, for this comprehensive answer on how the role of the, the ambassador looked like, certainly when you were performing it in Russia, and then also on, on, the, on the bilateral commission. I suppose an attempt was made later under Presidents Obama and Medvedev to revive a similar format with the bilateral presidential commission, though unfortunately that has long been dormant. But I want to shift slightly to the role of domestic, U.S. domestic politics in all of this. Uh, the role of domestic politics in enabling versus inhibiting, determining opportunities versus setting constraints 
for US foreign policy, especially vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And I do want to take one example to, to illustrate this question. In 1994, while you were serving in Moscow, the Democratic Party lost control over Congress. How instrumental was this shift uh, for Clinton's leeway internationally? And what were some of the implications for the president's ability to navigate the relationship with Russia, if there were any implications? Let me begin with that and then talk a little bit about domestic and international issues and how they, in one way or another, affect American policy. Um, I think the shift in the Houses of Congress uh, early uh, in the uh, first administration is a phenomenon that's not unusual in the United States, that presidents are elected in a wave of enthusiasm. They are given two years to perform miracles. Uh, that rarely happens. Uh, there is a buildup of backlash and that takes its toll in the uh, by-elections uh, for the Congress uh, after the first two years of the first term of an administration. And that in many ways is too short a time to be effective. Much of it is in learning. And as a result, this kind of semi-automatic shift is difficult. What's happened now with the increasing polarization in the American Congress is that that kind of a shift has come has become from an adverse set of circumstances to a disastrous division. And we need to be very concerned about it and certainly facing 2022. Uh, the American administration should and will have to do its very best uh, to convince the American public uh, that it should stay in control of the Congress and this will be a very challenging activity for it. Uh, but in 1994, it didn't become a fatal flaw. Uh, and there were people in both houses of the Congress, even with the change in leadership, that could get together on things and that Russia in those days, despite differences about how tough to be with Russia, was more of a bilateral consideration. I can remember uh, during my uh, years in Russia uh, that it was Senator John McCain and the Republicans who always came out for election monitoring the Democrats paid almost no attention to it. It was an enormous advantage for me to greet Senator McCain and his delegation. And he always made time for me and for he and his wife to have dinner together, a quiet, long discussion of what was going on in Russia. And I found him very broadly interested in Russia. He knew and understood both the upsides and the downsides of that relationship and how important it was. And I found his advice, particularly on what to do regarding the Congress was inordinately valuable, but the example of his leadership in coming to Russia uh, for those numerous elections was very significant. And my pattern was always to accompany this delegation 
during the morning period, uh, that is the AM period of Russian elections. And then I would go with my interpreter because my Russian language while I was studying it was not nearly capable enough uh, to deal with the complex situations that election monitoring required. We would go and walk around my neighborhood and I knew where the polling places were. And often because we were close to the Russian Ministry of Defense, uh, we would find military voting taking place uh, and talk to the election observers from the Russian parties and understand how they were seeing things and understand from the election officials who were always welcoming what their problems were and how they were resolving them. And it was very valuable because it gave one the sense, at least in the administration of an election, uh, in terms of bringing the votes to the ballot box and then counting them at the end at the ballot box, it was done with considerable transparency and with considerable legitimacy. And as a result, one had a better sense that Russian elections in those days, at least, were being conducted with an effort to try to reflect uh, popular choice rather than Kremlin advocacy, if I could put it that way. And so that part was important. Domestic and foreign policy issues have increasingly blended together. Uh, someone has coined the word intermestic uh, to describe the overlap between foreign policy and domestic issues. And much of that is true. Uh, that traditionally, American approaches in an electoral context have always been that domestic issues always outweigh foreign policy issues, in part because many of them are bread and butter economic issues, and those are things that Americans choose to evaluate in their decision about voting for a candidate or not. Uh, and I think that's still important. There is also an old American tradition now almost completely abandoned that foreign policy differences stop at the water's edge, that we are one united behind the government in its decisions as to where it will go in foreign policy. Now, uh, much of the divisions on foreign policy uh, creep well beyond uh, the boundaries of the United States and play a role in other people's thinking and how they work. Election interference is unfortunately a seeming order of the day. Uh, and countries have to be assiduous as they can be in uh, stopping foreign interference where it begins at the source in the foreign country concerned, but recognize uh, that uh, even overwhelming pressure and influence doesn't have the total capability uh, to affect or block such intervention. And that you need defenses at home against that kind of intervention taking place. The most insidious is obviously information operations, which in one way or another uh, tend to try to provide information to American voters in the multiple channels that are now available to do that, particularly using the internet, in ways that prejudice their voting outcome by pandering uh, to prejudices that are known about and which highlight and amplify those prejudices by adding false information into the mix. And people are much more likely to trust information, unfortunately, that panders to their prejudices than somehow runs against them. And so these questions exist. Uh, over time, with rare exceptions, I don't think any American election has been won on a particular foreign policy issue, but we do see debates 
that have turned or almost turned. Uh, Jerry Ford uh, was unwilling to admit that Poland was a communist country at the time, that uh, uh, Chinese uh, communist shelling of the little islands of Kimoy and Matsu, which were in effect under the control of Taiwan, uh, was a particularly influential feature of an election in the early 1960s. Uh, we don't often find them. They're not replete in every election, but many of them appear. And one would think that now with the pandemic, with economic activities, the interrelationship uh, between the foreign affairs aspects of both of those questions and the domestic aspects uh, should be uh, clearly apparent, uh, understood and evaluated, even if in fact, some of the uh, earlier thoughts about the dominance of the domestic issues will still hold true and perhaps needs to be carefully evaluated as we get uh, close to our next election. Thank you, Ambassador Pickering, for these uh, extremely comprehensive reflections on the domestic uh, foreign nexus. I want to come to the last question of our conversation today. <laughs> I'm which... sorry to hear that. I really enjoyed <laughs> talking about these things with you, Hannah. Thank you. But it is a big Thank question. Thank you, too, for the quality of your questions. They're important. A big question that I reserved for the end of our conversation, <laughs> where we try to bring it all together. And I, I do want to ask you, you have observed and been involved in your country's relations with Russia over decades. If you now reflect back on the trajectory of the US-Russia relationship from the 1980s until the present day, um, where do you see the most consequential inflection points, misunderstandings, perhaps lost opportunities in that relationship over time? Writ large. Grosso modo, I would say the end of communism on December 26, uh, 1991, uh, was a huge inflection point, the ramifications of which lasted quite a bit of time. Uh, the Boris uh, Yeltsin choice of Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin uh, to assume a major position of national leadership in 2000 uh, marked a serious inflection point. Uh, I would seek another inflection point, but pointing a date on it is harder. And that's the period where Putin began to feel increasingly that his own continuation in office depended very heavily on exploiting the American relationship and those pieces of the American relationship to which he objected and which he felt in an appeal to Russian nationalism would carry significant weight with the Russian voting public. And perhaps that was two, three, four, five years into his first term when that began and represented the beginning of something that moved beyond a sense of suspicion and wariness to a sense that 
uh, the future of his leadership of his country depended very heavily on being able to find ways, both true and false, to pick apart the American relationship. Now, I've said nothing about America's response to any of these questions, and that figures deeply into the mix and adds complications because the American response, uh, as responses of almost any country to any major foreign policy issues, are often far from perfect and do not, in fact, uh, comprehend all of the aspects of the problem and even more difficult, the solutions uh, do not present themselves in ways that you could say totally resolve every aspect of a problem. You take risks. Uh, President Biden took a serious risk in getting out of Afghanistan. But in my view, it was worth taking because even after 20 years, there was no palpable end in sight and a constant running on the deleterious trade mill of Afghanistan and getting nowhere, which is essentially where we were, required a president of stature and determination to take the obvious invidious risks of getting out. And they were compounded by uh, what took place, which was an energized and speeded up collapse of Afghan government authority in the aftermath of U.S. withdrawal and the uncertainties of the situations with respect to Afghanistan and in light of the endemic corruption, which had always plagued serious portions of the Afghan government in its effort to support and serve its own people. Secondly, I would say, and I'm talking about current time, the willingness of President Biden very early on to take on three major pieces of legislation uh, to institute programs so expensive that they represented multiples of the regular American congressional budget were in that particular context also acts of high risk and high courage. Uh, and whether he will get all of that legislation or not, and whether it will emerge in perfect form or not, is uncertain. Uh, what I hope is that he will get a sufficient amount of that and a sufficient amount of success in that. And at days that seems to be a formidable mountain to cross uh, to assure that continuity change and policy shifts that have been needed for 20 years will take place in the American system which will do their bit in reinforcing the drop we all know that has taken place in foreign countries' esteem for admiration of and attachment to the United States. No country continues forever uh, to be the darling of other countries. Every country has to make mistakes or take risks which have downsides. 
You cannot please all of the people all of the time, as Abraham Lincoln wisely told us uh, nearly now several hundred years ago. And as a result, an American president has to have courage and a deep sense about risk-taking. And Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt and hopefully John, uh, Joe Biden will represent the kind of president who sees the absolute necessity for change and the risks associated with that as part and parcel of what they must do uh, to be fully supportive of their country and its interests. Thank you so much, uh, Ambassador Pickering, for this yet again very comprehensive answer. I think today we learned so much, not only about your time spent in Russia, but also about foreign affairs, US foreign policy, and what makes for di diplomatic service and leadership more broadly. And I believe that uh, our viewers, future scholars, scholars of Russia, but also of, of foreign affairs more broadly, future generations of diplomats and ambassadors will hugely benefit from this conversation today. So thank you so much. Thank you, Hannah, very much. Let me thank you for your questions. They have been thoughtful and incisive and very useful. Let me apologize for the length of my response. Let me say how much I've enjoyed this. I've been honored to have been asked. Uh, I have had the special pleasure with deeply advancing age uh, to reflect back on my career and my life uh, and hopefully to leave behind in this series of discussions some useful lessons without too much encumbrance of other impedimenta in my responses uh, for those who will come forward. And if so, I've done what I hope to be another step in a public service career that has not ended. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. Major support for the Ambassadorial Series was provided by Carnegie Corporation of New York. The Ambassadorial Series is a product of the Monterey Initiative in Russian Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. The Monterey Initiative in Russian Studies, or MIR, promotes a nuanced and clear-eyed understanding of contemporary Russia and U.S.-Russia relations. The executive producer of the Ambassadorial Series is Anna Vasilyeva. Hanna Note is the associate producer and host. Our series is produced by Jarlath McGuckin. Our audio engineer is Floyd Yarmouth at Rock House. The Ambassadorial Series is dedicated to the memory of the 12th president of Carnegie Corporation of New York, Dr. Vartan Gregorian, a visionary and an ardent supporter of international dialogue and diplomacy. Thank you for listening. <laughs>